This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Almost five years after starting up, online outlet The Spin-Off now wants to recruit its readers. It's asking them to become members and cough up alongside its corporate sponsors and clients while still keeping the content free for all. It's even offering them some editorial input in return for their support. So Media Watch asks the site's founding father, won't that undermine its editors and muddy the mission? Also, it's supposed to be the government's year of delivery, but broadcasting policy's been returned to sender. And how we get around increasingly congested cities and towns has become a hot topic, with paying for public transport a political matter. So are the facts on that being spun according to agendas, as some insist? Not many people take the train and not many people take the bus, and there are fewer as a percentage of the population taking the bus and the train now than there were 20 years ago. So who's winning here? But before all that, a sudden spate of politically motivated ads shows the media should check them out closely before cashing the checks and publishing the propaganda. The eyes are 70, the nose are 51, the eyes have it. Right, order, order, order. Second reading. Clark reads the bill. End of life choice bill, second reading. This bill is set down for consideration in committee next sitting day. Unlock the doors. That was Parliament Speaker Trevor Mallard with the outcome of the conscience vote on the end-of-life bill last Wednesday. And in conversation with euthanasia campaigner Leslie Martin the following morning on TVNZ's breakfast show, John Campbell pointed out that it's been a long process getting to that point and there's much more process to go through yet, during which people who don't want the law changed will continue to campaign for that. This is the third time we've seen a bill in this form uh, before the House. 1995 it failed, 2003 has failed, 7050 now, but with a lot of amendments, I think, to come in this third phase. What do you think of the bill? Well, let's just start with the amendments. I mean, I know Judith Collins has has got a whole toilet roll full. Maggie Barry. Maggie, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, yeah, but she has, it is a toilet roll full, you're quite right. Readers of the Herald on Sunday last weekend couldn't have failed to notice an ad taking up the whole of page 11. Doctors want no part in assisted suicide, said a big, bold, blood-red headline above an open letter signed by more than a 1,000 doctors who say that, even if it's legalised, euthanasia is unethical. And that was superimposed on a sea of hundreds of names in the background. The Care Alliance, a charity that opposes physician-assisted euthanasia, paid for the ad which urges other doctors to sign up. And the ad will have annoyed readers who don't necessarily agree with that viewpoint on this contentious issue. But groups wanting to have a say are entitled to buy space in the media to get a message across, and publishers are quite entitled to place those ads and charge groups willing to pay for it. But the ad last Sunday wasn't really aimed at doctors who might be reading the paper or even the hundreds of thousands of other readers of the Herald on Sunday. It was really aimed at MPs voting with their consciences on the end-of-life choice bill, which was back in Parliament this week. And the ad certainly got the attention of the media on an otherwise slow news Sunday. The Herald's sister station, News Talk ZB, covered the ad in its weekend collective show. Sinead, why are you and uh, and the other doctors, uh, more than a 1,000, uh, against assisted suicide? Um, well, we've taken the stance of putting our names to that letter because we're deeply concerned uh, that if this bill became legalised for euthanasia and assisted suicide, that it would put vulnerable people uh, more at risk. The Care Alliance ad was also the lead story in RNZ's news bulletin on Sunday morning and the following day also a story for morning report on RNZ National and another outing for Dr Donnelly. She has this message for MPs who are voting on Wednesday. 
they have been given by us the right to vote on this very important issue. So the the message is that as doctors, we don't want to be part of it. You're going to, in our view, um, destroy the profession of medicine by drawing us in to ending the life of our patients. So the Care Alliance got a decent return on its investment on that ad in the Herald on Sunday last weekend from the news media. And so did another political ad published in the Weekend Herald a day before, one showing the former Prime Minister John Key morphing into prospective politician Christopher Luxon against a backdrop of National Party Blue. Now the fact that it looked like on the face of it a political party promotion, which might break the rules for those, guaranteed that this ad was also discussed on Monday's Morning Report. Electoral experts and lawyer Graham Edgler says an, an advertisement with the New Zealand Herald on Saturday suggesting the outgoing Air New Zealand chief executive should run for the National Party leadership for next year's election is unlawful. The ad is a reworking of Dick Frizzell's well-known artwork, Mickey Tutiki. In Morning Report, Susie Ferguson wasn't the only one comparing it to Dick Frizzell's piece of Kiwiana pop art. The sort of a take-off of... of um uh, Dick Frizzell's uh, artwork, uh, you know, where, where Mickey Mouse morphs into a ticky. And I must say, when I saw it, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I thought, this does not look like the National Party to me. It was former Herald Editor-in-Chief Gavin Ellis on his weekly media slot on 9 to noon last Tuesday. Now, there have been a few Mickey Mouse politicians down the years, but the cartoon character himself has never put his hand up for politics here. And here at Media Watch, the ad reminded us more of an older cartoon, which once graced the cover of a collection of political cartoons from the 1980s. During the turbulent times of the fourth Labour government, cartoonist Trace Hodgson drew a jovial David Longy, dramatically morphing over five frames into a wild-eyed, sharp-fanged Roger Douglas. Now, the ad in the Weekend Herald, by contrast, wishfully showed the outgoing Air New Zealand boss Christopher Luxon as a future manifestation of the electorally successful John Key. And the man behind the ad turned out to be not the National Party, but a property tycoon who was once New Zealand's youngest real estate agent. Now, he hasn't yet given the media his reasons for shelling out an estimated $20,000 for the half-page ad. But on 9 to noon, Gavin Ellis reckoned the paper shouldn't have printed it. Why did... The Herald on Sunday accept that ad and publish it without making some fairly rigorous inquiries of the National Party and Mr Luxon before doing so. Now the Electoral Commission is looking into the um, the, the ad um, but th- that presumably will only be to see whether there is any uh, reason why um, Entrepreneur Steve Brooks should be called to account, uh, not the newspaper. But it surprised me, and surprised me greatly, that um, that the uh, that the Herald on Sunday would ro- run that ad without first checking with the National Party and uh, Mr. Luxon to see whether um, they were responsible. It was actually the Weekend Herald, not the Herald on Sunday, which published Stephen Brooks' odd ad. But on Morning Report, electoral law specialist Graham Edgeler told Susie Ferguson the Herald could be liable. What about the New Zealand Herald here? Do they have any responsibility because they were the publisher? Yes, they do. 
if the ad is, is considered to be an illegal ad, I assume they haven't sort of been lied to in some way. You know, they've just taken an ad and, and published it without perhaps realising the importance of it. If the, the Herald have had their you know, a, a statement somewhere, you know, yes, no, I have permission from the National Party, um, this is an official ad, you know, that, that would be useful for them. Uh, if they haven't, they've published the ad just as much as the, uh, the person who asked them to publish it. Uh, and so it's something they could get in trouble for as well. And so the consequences... Um, it's not, not a particularly serious... It's not a particularly serious offence. I mean, it's a, a, in the current... For the, for the people involved, it would be a, a maximum fine of $10,000. And that would, you know, it's one ad, you know, far out from the election. It's, uh, as far as we can tell, it's not a dishonest ad and sort of, you know, it's not pretending to actually be a National Party ad. You know, it hasn't got the approved by Greg Hamilton, the National Party secretary, I don't mean anything like that. So it's it's not, you know, nearly as bad as it might be for this type of ad. But potentially the, the person who promoted the ad and the publisher themselves having, it seems, not done enough checks to, to make sure that um, this was an ad that was allowed to be published could potentially be prosecuted. Now, Christopher Luxon is not even a member of the National Party yet, let alone a candidate, but the same day the New Zealand Herald also carried the news that its owner and publisher NZME had been sanctioned for running political ads from someone who is a candidate in a hotly contested election. A political ad by mayoral candidate John Tamahiri has been judged misleading by New Zealand's advertising watchdog. The Advertising Standards Authority upheld a complaint about the ad from a member of the public. It had claimed Goff is letting Auckland Transport cut the speed limit on 700 kilometres of roads to just 30 kilometres an hour. This ad, which played on News Talk ZB for two weeks, the actual proposal is for speed limits ranging from between 30 and 80 kilometres an hour, depending on where you live in Auckland. And Auckland Transport reckons that only about 70 kilometres of roads in the region could be restricted to just 30 kilometres an hour under the proposal. And all this was just a proposal, they said, for the public yet to consider. But John Tamahiri told the Advertising Standards Authority Auckland Transport had done a very unsatisfactory job of advising the public. More people heard our advertisement than Auckland Transport reached with their consultation programme. Though if that's true, well that makes the consequences of his ad's misleading message even more serious. NZME told the Advertising Standards Authority that John Tamahiri's election ad was designed and submitted on behalf of the client and it presumed that the script and the figures provided were correct. NZME, which owns both News Talk ZB and The Herald, told the authority its advertisers are responsible for ensuring their ads can be substantiated. But it also said... Notwithstanding that, we are cognizant of the fact that we too have a responsibility as a broadcaster to ensure that the public is not misled. Indeed they do. But the member of the public who complained about the ad to the authority in the first place, former ACT Party MP John Biscarwin, actually said it was the Herald which confirmed the ad was inaccurate. The Herald's own website says the material in the ad is false and misleading. My complaint is that ZB and John Tamahiri continue to run the ad when they know it is false. And NZME did tell the Advertising Standards Authority there was no evidence that anyone there had ever asked Mr Tamahiri if the figures quoted could be substantiated. And it added, Our team has been reminded to be vigilant when accepting advocacy advertisements to avoid this from reoccurring. But, as we've just heard, that didn't prevent the Weekend Herald from publishing that decidedly dodgy-looking ad about Christopher Luxon, which many readers took to be a National Party promotion. As the Auckland elections heat up and a general election is little more than a year away, more background checks are clearly needed before they cash the checks from people who want them to publish political propaganda.
Last week, the Minister of Broadcasting and Digital Media, Chris Farfoy, handed out the prize for Network of the Year at the New Zealand Radio Awards, and he told the gathering how the radio industry kick-started his career before politics. 20 years ago, I left uh, the broadcasting school and became a poorly paid intern at ZB. Um, what I didn't mind about the bad pay was the magnificent industry that I entered. Uh, it's been a long time since then. I've taken a few wrong turns and become the broadcasting minister. But can I... <laughs> <laughs> but can I thank you um, for informing and entertaining us um, and ask that you keep people like me on our toes and take, taking the piss out of us uh, because that's your job and our country is better for it too. Well, the Prime Minister obviously thinks that Chris Farfoy has taken some right turns as well. He got promoted in Wednesday's Cabinet reshuffle. But he still holds that problem portfolio of broadcasting and digital media. And it's a problem because in what's supposed to be a year of delivery for this government, its broadcasting and media policy is going backwards, in spite of $145 million of public money being spent on the sector last year. Labour went into the 2017 election promising $154 million more over four years and a public media funding commission to make decisions about funding at arm's length from the government. Its former minister, Claire Curran, appointed four people to a ministerial advisory group to make that happen and it got $500,000 of broadcasting funding from the 2018 budget for that. When Chris Farfoy took over broadcasting last year, he appointed two more members to the group in November and then changed the terms of reference to include the preparation of a case for Budget 2019 on the additional baseline funding necessary to support an effective public media system. But this year's budget came and went with no significant funding increase, so we asked the Minister last month what was the advisory group's advice. I'm not going to give you the detail of uh, what their advice was uh, around the options of public media, but they have given us enough Christopher the Mill to go away and have a rather large think about the future of public media. Well, whatever the advisory group's advice was, the policy now doesn't include a public media funding commission after all, and the advisory group's remit officially came to an end today. The supplementary estimates questionnaire published by the Ministry for Culture and Heritage for the budget says this. The Minister considers that there are other ways of achieving a strong public broadcasting future. The resources to establish and maintain a commission are better spent directly funding our public media entities. And that's a pretty big bill for some advice on allocating funding and establishing a commission which the Minister evidently didn't want. One of the most vocal critics of all this has been Nationals Broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee, and she's asked the Minister in a written parliamentary question for a breakdown of how all the money for the Public Media Ministerial Advisory Group was spent. She's due a reply on that on Tuesday, which will be interesting. Last week, the UK-based Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism released what it proudly calls the most comprehensive comparative study of news consumption in the world. Its annual digital news report surveys 38 countries, though sadly New Zealand isn't one of them. And this year, a key focus was the news media making money, one way or another, from the online audience, which doesn't have to pay for news online if it doesn't want to, in the internet age. The New Zealand Herald has just put up a paywall obliging online readers to pay for its premium content. And it's not the only one. Digital subscriptions are bringing in more money globally, said the Reuters Institute's digital news report for this year. And unveiling the findings for 2019 in a live online broadcast last week, the lead author Nick Newman said this. So firstly, we find uh, that more people are paying for news 
but growth is still really focused just on a few big countries and a few big brands. But one key question the Digital News Report asked was, is subscription fatigue now setting in? What we find here is that the vast majority are only prepared to pay for one subscription. And this is true for richer people, it's true for more educated people, and it's true in almost every country we look at. And if the same applies here in New Zealand, well, that possibly makes it a tough time for the Auckland-based outlet The Spin-Off to launch a new membership scheme, Spin-Off Members. Since it launched almost five years ago, the spin-off has got by on income from sponsors and from advertising. And unlike paywalls, this membership scheme will help keep the online content free for all, even those who don't sign up or pay up. The spin-off is suggesting that members cough up $8 a month, but they can pay as much or as little as they want. And last Tuesday, the spin-off founder Duncan Grieve told Jesse Mulligan on RNZ National they want editorial input as well as money from their readers. The first batch of members will get a survey later this week which will we'll sort of list a few different areas of coverage that we'd like to do more of um, and we'll weigh members' views very heavily when we're deciding whether it's stories to commission or even journalists to hire. You know, for example, we would really like to have a, a full-time science and climate change reporter. There isn't a commercial basis for that, but... We think that it's a huge area of need. So essentially it's it's solving a, a commercial problem that we have, have been unable to otherwise. Well, that sounds like a nice idea to build bonds with the audience, investing in the spin-off's future. But won't giving the paying members editorial input, on top of what the spin-off's commercial sponsors are paying for, complicate his business for possibly not that much more money in the bank? The commercial model that we were trying and testing at the start has got us this far. But we've certainly come to a point where that idea of having a single headline sponsor in a particular section that made it sustainable, that is not proving as viable as we once did. Mm-hmm. And in certain types of coverage, whether it's um, business coverage, which is sponsored by Kiwi Bank, there is a sort of a logical partner who is a, effectively a facilitator within that broad area of coverage. With other areas, there isn't such a, a logical case to be made. So, you know, with science reporting or, say, social issues, it's not like there's a, a big corporate who's really interested in creating more social issues. No. We have effectively, you know, decided to go to our readers and say, here's all the things that the spin-off does that it will continue to do. Here's a, you know, a suite of things that we would really like to do. If you want to sort of help us consider becoming a member, it won't be the, the whole decision-making process, but it will be you know, effectively a, a vote um, in that that we will, will consider strongly. We launched on Monday, we're, we're just shy of 1,000... Sorry, on Tuesday, and we're just shy of 1,000 members as we record this on Thursday mornings. You, you never really know until you actually jump in the pool. Now, there's a nice line in uh, the piece that you wrote uh, to announce the scheme. We want to listen as much as we speak. Um, <laughs> the media organisations are never democracies. You have editors deciding what goes on. Do you seriously want to be consulting paying members just to feel like you're connected and really serving them and have them influence what you cover and how? It sounds so corny, right? Well, yeah. it just sounds complicated. You know that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but, everyone wants to be connected to the audience. You still want editors deciding stuff because they know best, and that's their job. Basically, there was an era, and, and you just alluded to it in, in media that was essentially 
everything up until sort of call it 2010, until the social era where the editor was the one true God. There was a an ability to feedback on that, whether it was op-eds or letters to the editor, but it was very controlled. And over the last 10 years in the social web era, people are feeding back constantly. And the thing that I really like about members is sometimes you can't tell the difference between someone who's functionally trolling you and someone who's got a genuine, who's a real audience member who loves your product but has a genuine critique here. And disentangling the two when it's all just this constant torrent on social media is quite difficult. What this does is sort of formalise and codify a way for people who are genuinely engaged with us to give us feedback through a particular channel. Right now, it's basically like a a Google survey which will go out once every month or two and we'll ask them a series of questions. And obviously, we'll still be have all our normal editorial processes. It's just an extra voice that it functionally will represent a really engaged readership all But the what time. if it becomes a, a micro version of that? As Jesse Mulligan pointed out in his interview with you earlier in the week, he talked about the uh, the Graylin 500. Uh, I don't know if they exist or not, but a group of people, Auckland-based, connected, media savvy, that might be inclined to be members. A lot of them, if they become members, you make this promise, might want their point of view represented in the spin-off and be cheesed off if they don't get it, advocate for that, that's going to be annoying. Well, I don't think it's well, annoying for them or for us. Uh, for you. If you've made the promise that you'll respond to them because they're giving you some money. We've made the awkward. promise that we'll, we'll listen to them. We haven't made the promise that we will act on every single one of their sort of diktats. And and also, I think the idea that the spin-off only represents the sort of Ponsonby or Greyland 500, those two suburbs are currently warring over who possesses the, the 500 uh, <laughs> moniker for now. There can be this idea, and we certainly feel that way at times, that there is this kind of inner-city media comms kind of group that really sort of dominate the spin-off. But I think, in, in fact, what we're starting to see is that there's actually a much broader demographic reading us than we think, and in some ways it might open us up because part of what we've asked is not just to survey them, but our audience, but if you have an area of expertise and we might be able to call on you to background us on a particular area, say that you'd be willing to do that. And this person, they, they work in a particular area of business in Wellington, they're retired, they're very much a, a commercial person, and you're like, well, that's not who you naturally think of as the spin-off audience. So in some ways it's almost... The reverse of that. So they can identify themselves as someone willing to give up their expertise. Absolutely. Kind um, of like, almost like an organ donor tick on their membership. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, right now this is an absolute baby. But I'm so excited that we have this thing that's ours, that we can grow and evolve. And I have no doubt that it will that members in five years' time will be sort of light years away from this, far more sophisticated one interesting thing, though, in the frequently asked questions, um, businesses as members, you say, yeah, absolutely, if you want to be, we'll talk you through different levels to suit the scale of your business and uh, your desire to help. I mean, businesses are joining up through this um, smaller level, mainly designed for individuals. Is that another way that um, you might end up with you know, corporate sponsors and things like that? That will complicate things too, wouldn't it? Well, I, I don't think that the, there would be any sense that you know, their voices would be any louder than an individual. So we kind of put that there ultimately because something that we are curious about, some businesses have, have far, a far greater ability to contribute than an individual. And that's why we, we've made the whole thing pay what you want. So if you can, you can become a member for a dollar a year 
and that's fine because for some people that it that is very much all they can afford and we don't want it to be exclusionary that's why it's a membership program and not a paywall because we want the content to be free mm. but it might be that a business goes i believe in the spin-offs co-popper i want to support that you know we can afford to pay say a thousand dollars a year it's not hugely meaningful to us but we know it'll be meaningful to them the business's participation won't be at, on the idea that there is a, a hierarchy of uh, volume to the voices that we hear, just that you can contribute commensurate to your ability to pay. But others that operate membership models, things like consumer, for example, they're like trust-owned, cooperative-type outlets, yours as a business, and does this membership thing make it actually less likely that at some point you could um, sell it to NZME or a bank or something that wants a content division? When I started the spin-off, I, I assumed with colossal naivety that that the most likely outcome was that we would run it for a few years and that one of the other media companies would go, oh, that's a cool thing, we'll we'll buy that and slot it in the way a Bauer or a sort of Fairfax has assembled their their um, their empires kind of thing. I thought that that's how it would work. And I sort of realised this is a different era, like that media companies aren't in acquisition mode, they're in sort of fighting to survive mode. Mm. And But the other thing that happened was that I sort of loved our independence and, and I loved our group of people and how we were making this together. And um, I genuinely don't think about whether it makes us more or less acquirable. You know, there, there's, there's a world where we have 10,000 or, or, you know, 50,000 uh, members. And in that case, the number that matters is revenue derived from them and the strength of the compact you have together. That was Duncan Grieve, the managing editor and founder of The Spin-Off, which this week launched a membership scheme asking its readers to contribute not just money, but also ideas and expertise. And you can hear more from Duncan Grieve about the first five years of The Spin-Off as a startup, the complexities of creating content alongside sponsors, and the role and prospects for online startups in the media market, both here and overseas. All that is in the full version of that interview, which you can find on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website or the MediaWatch section of the RNZ RNZ app. Just look for the title, The Spin-Off Strives to Recruit Its Readers. On his Mike Hosking breakfast show on News Talk ZB last Wednesday, it was pretty clear what he thought about councils around the country that have recently declared a climate emergency. This is virtue signalling at its worst, isn't it? Well, you could look at it like that, um, you know, but raising awareness, I think, is the key issue here of uh, not just an emerging issue, but something that is right in front of us now. And so just having that conversation between you and I, for example, all the various councils is helpful. The local government New Zealand Vice President Stuart Crosby then told Mike Hosking that transport was one area where some local authorities were actually walking the talk on climate change. But on his show last Monday, Mike Hosking slated one of the councils that's recently declared a climate emergency on this very issue. While we're on the subject of Wellington City Council, congratulations, you got your climate emergency. Every councillor voted for the emergency. Yes, spineless... Except Councillor Nicola Young, who says it's nonsense and it's preachy. And Nicola is my favourite Wellington City Councillor by some margin. She can come and live on our 
when we secede, yes, she can exactly. come and live on our island. She's more than welcome to live on our island, 10 minutes away from us. And if you were wondering what sort of a place Mike Hosking's island might be, well, perhaps something like Jeremy Clarkson Island, as dreamed up by British comedian Harry Enfield for the BBC a few years back. This island is Clarkson Island. <laughs> we feed them mainly on a diet of raw meat and nonsense. <laughs> what about that lot? Oh, crikey. They're asylum-seeking Clarksons. <laughs> they come over here and try and ticket our cars. My God! Don't worry, Stig will sort them out. Go on, Stig. Come on, boy. But we digress. What was bothering Mike Hosking on Monday on News Talk ZB was a claim in the media about the capital's public transport usage. Headline, public transport becoming a more popular option in Wellington. That's your headline. Public transport becoming a more popular option in Wellington. So the idea there is that we're all on board with public transport. Public transport's the future, trains and trains and um, buses, of course. Now, in many, many commentaries on News Talk ZB and in the New Zealand Herald, Mike Hosking has told his audience that spending more on trains, buses and cycling is a waste of money and time. For example, he told his ZB listeners this a year earlier, almost to the day. And even when they're not, they don't supply, have never supplied, and will most likely never, ever supply the sort of service that we actually want. I mean, if petrol goes to three bucks a litre, it'll change. But until then, we love our cars. We have more cars per head of population than most places on the planet, and that's not changing. It's an ideological battle. And Mike Hosking has joined the motorist militia in that particular hearts and minds battle. And people like me who bang on about this is, do you know what? I think we're starting to win. I think the tide is turning, and these clowns are slowly but surely being exposed for what they are. But to win the argument, Mike Hosking said a year ago, you need the facts on your side. The same way the public transport lobby preached the myth that bike lanes and bus lanes and less and less bitumen for cars is the answer to getting to work. What's gone wrong in all of these debates is the honesty, or lack of it. Nothing wrong with new ideas, different approaches, nothing even wrong in the passionate preaching their particular form of wisdom. But it has to be fact-based and honest. It does indeed. And with that in mind, Mike Hosking last Monday countered the claims in the news about more commuters to the capital using public transport. Wellington City Council transport data shows that daily commuter numbers have grown by 10,000. And you think, my word, and then it goes 10,000 over 20 years. So in other words, 500 a year, not much more than one a day, not much more than one person a day. How much do you reckon they've spent on public transport in Wellington in the last 20 years? for one more person a day. And providing public transport, of course, costs money, even if the usage isn't rising. But according to the Wellington City Council's new stats, reported by RNZ last weekend, 7,000 more train trips in commuting time amounts to more than 30 more trains full of people arriving in Wellington every morning. Many of them would otherwise have been in 4,300 cars which were making their rush hour journey into the central city 19 years ago, but aren't now in 2019. And out of the 84,000 daily commuters, those are not insignificant numbers, but not enough to move Mike Hosking, because, he said, the Wellington City Council didn't point out that the Greater Wellington region's population went up between the year 2000 and this year from 430-odd thousand to more than half a million. So you've got 90,000 more people and you've got 10,000 more on the train, which means you've got a equivalent of 80,000 people who aren't taking the train. How many people take the train? 84,000 or public transport, 84,000 people. What's 84 as a percentage of 520? Well, you do the math. Not many.
not many people take the train and not many people take the bus, and there are fewer as a percentage of the population taking the bus and the train now than there were 20 years ago. So who's winning here? So who is winning? Good question. Even allowing for the fact that Mike Hosking had mixed up train usage with all public transport there, on those numbers the difference might seem to be marginal on the face of it. But of the additional 90,000-odd residents of Greater Wellington, not all of them, of course, are making the trip into the capital in peak time, whether by bus, car, train or electric skateboard. The council's new stats and the public transport patronage data collected by the Greater Wellington Regional Council each year since 1999. These show that public transport accounted for more than 72% of the growth in commuting to the central city between 2000 and 2019. Less than half of the commuters now come by car, 48%. In the year 2000, 60% drove in. So in short, public transport is a more popular choice among those who commute into central Wellington now than it was 20 years ago, even though almost half of the people commuting still do come in cars. But on top of that, 7,000 more people a day walk to work in 2019 than in 2000, mainly because thousands more people who work in the centre city now live there too. And Wellington City Council's cordon count data also shows that over 2,300 people per day cycle into the city during the two-hour morning peak, and that's up from just 800 20 years ago, and that's the highest it's ever been in the past 20 years of counting. On his News Talk ZB show the following day, Mike Hosking was concerned about Christchurch and news that public transport fares there are being hiked just weeks after the City Council and the Regional Council declared a climate emergency. Doesn't a climate emergency indicate you might want to use public transport, therefore saving fossil fuels and car? Yes, it would. And therefore, if you declared a climate emergency, wouldn't you be reticent to put up the price and therefore make it more difficult to use? Yes, 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 yes. But yet they have. So they've declared a climate emergency and one of the offshoots of a climate emergency public transport is being made by both councils more expensive. Well, you know the first uh, casualty in an emergency, don't you? Which is what? Logic. Yeah. Gone. Out the door. Good points there from Mike Hosking. Cost is a factor in prompting people to opt for public transport or not. And Mike Hosking could have seen for himself in Auckland what happened when the cost was taken out of the equation last weekend. To mark the milestone of 100 million public transport trips made in a 12-month period, Auckland Transport made city transport free for everyone for a day. Auckland Public Transport Booms in Popularity was the headline and Stuff the Next Day. That was for a piece written by Todd Nile, a specialist reporter on Auckland Council and the city's transport. And he said public transport patronage grew by 7.6% over the past year in Auckland. But in Sydney, Todd Nile said people take two and a half times more trips on public transport than Aucklanders do. And partly that's because they pay less to travel, but... Todd Niles said the fares cover only a third of the cost of Sydney's services and that's forecast to drop to just 27% by 2028. And Todd Niles said the fares make up nearly half the cost of public transport in Auckland with ratepayers and taxpayers covering the rest. And Todd Niles wound up with this conclusion. Auckland has decisions to make which are unprecedented in New Zealand and the partly built underground city rail link won't be the last big spend needed. The city is entering a new and challenging phase. And part of the challenge will be the big-name host of the city's most-listened-to commercial radio station telling thousands of Aucklanders, many of them listening in their cars who are cranky about congestion, that it's just not worth investing in public transport. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then we'll be back again with Media Watch at the same time next Sunday 
here on RNZ National.